so this morning. Um, we're going to move on with our, our journey through Mark and events in Jesus' life are now starting to move on at, at really quite a pace. We've been in the last week of Jesus' life for a while now. And now we enter the last 12 hours of, of, his, of his life on earth. Actually, we enter the, the part that um, is covered in the film The Passion of the Christ. I'm not sure if you've seen that film. I've seen it a few times. I, I'm not sure whether I can recommend it. It's, it's an 18, and there's a reason for that. Um, but, actually, look, I've got one real major problem with that film, and that it's that it ends about a minute before it should. It ends with Jesus in the tomb, and then the credits come up. That's about a minute too early. Actually, it should end with Jesus rising and walking out of the tomb in glory. And as we go through the events of the next couple of, next few Sundays, the, the next few events in Jesus' life, which are difficult, then that's what we need to keep in mind, that, that that's the end point. Jesus rises and moves on in glory. We've got some tricky stuff to get through, but that's the end point. And so, last week, Raj talked about the last meal the disciples were sharing together, the Passover meal, and Jesus starting the Lord's Supper, called communion, bread and wine, in remembrance of him. And then Jesus tells them all again, he's going to be going to his death soon, and that they're all going to leave him and abandon him for a while. He says that the shepherd's going to be struck down, the sheep are going to be scattered. And then Peter says, I'll never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, look, before the morning comes, you're already going to have betrayed me. The rest of the disciples say, oh, we won't abandon you either. We'd rather die. And then we get to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's the scripture we're going to look at today. It's in all of the Gospels. Of course, we're going to be looking at it in Mark. And this, this is literally the calm before the storm. This is Jesus' last prayer time. doesn't mean it's going to be easy for him. And the disciples see Jesus in a way that they've not seen him before. So if you've got a Bible and you wish to turn to Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42, feel free to do so but they've already appeared behind me, which is brilliant. This is what it says. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. After the Last Supper, the disciples went for a walk with Jesus. And they ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane, which there's a picture of what it might be. It's interesting if you kind of have a look around. There's about four or five places that claim to be the Garden of Gethsemane. It probably looked a little bit like that. It's about half a mile outside of Jerusalem in Kidron Valley. It's an olive grove. The name Gethsemane means oil press. There'd probably be a, a big oil press there heavy beam lowered onto a, a sack of olives, a weight, pressing all the oil out, squishing the olives to make olive oil. Garden of Gethsemane, a, a place a place of pressure. This is a place that Jesus has gone to often. We get references to that in John and in Luke. He's been there a few times. He's got a place to go and pray. Actually, before we do anything else, straight away, that tells us that Jesus prays regularly and he's got a place he can go to. That's one of the basics we talk about on the Alpha Course, having a place to go and pray, to separate yourself, to get serious with God. For Jesus, one of his places is the garden. All of the disciples, except Judas go to the garden, but Matthew and Mark, they say that Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James and John, closer to the place where he's going to pray. These disciples couldn't stay awake. These are disciples who a couple of hours earlier have said, look, we'll die for you if necessary. We just can't stay awake. Jesus says to the disciples how troubled he is. He says, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Hopefully that should get rid of any idea that as Christians we're not going to have some difficult emotions. That we shouldn't ever be sad or upset or shaken. Here Jesus is sad and upset and shaken. He experiences sorrow to the point of death. All he's asked is that the disciples should stay awake and pray, and they fall asleep. Okay, they're probably tired, but they don't realize that one of the darkest moments in all of their lives is just around the corner. 
Peter sleeps. He sees no urgency. Jesus comes back and they're all snoring. He can't even stay awake for an hour. He wouldn't have made it through our worship time. Already asleep. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And after being let down by his friends three times, his betrayer arrives. And then the passage ends. There's a lot in this passage. It's a very weighty passage. It tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us a lot about his disciples. I'm not going to say that I've got three points, but I've got three things that I want to look at. And they are, what was Jesus going through in the garden? What was Jesus praying? And what were his disciples doing? Actually, as we get to what his disciples were doing, we start to talk about a sense of urgency that's already been mentioned this morning. So my first, not quite a point, says, what was Jesus going through in the garden? He knows that his moments from his arrest, he knows that he's going to be beaten, painfully mistreated, whipped. He's going to be made fun of, mocked humiliated publicly for everyone to see. Those who wanted him dead, those who followed him, those who were his friends, his disciples, his mother. He knows he's going to be nailed to a cross and he's going to hang there for hours. His body was human and he's going to feel everything as intensely as we would. Never have we or the disciples seen Jesus so emotionally distraught. He's faced a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee and he's totally relaxed and unruffled and stops it with a word. He's faced demons. He's faced tempting by the devil. He's faced barrages of questions from different groups of Jerusalem's religious leaders. Met them all with total composure and complete surety. He's seen people's seemingly solid arguments dissolve in front of him. He's cleansed lepers, he's raised the dead, he's healed the sick. He's proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. But in the garden, the disciples must have been hugely distressed by what they've seen and by what they hear him say. Jesus throws himself to the ground, agonizing in prayer. Something terrible is going to happen. Jesus knows it. The disciples are beginning to understand it as well. Was he afraid of the pain? Was he scared of what his body and mind were going to have to go through? Could he actually do the task? Actually, for Jesus, it is so much worse than that. Luther wrote that no one ever feared death as much as this man. And the reason for that 
is that no person ever possessed such a keen understanding of the reality of death and sin and the forces of evil to which Jesus is about to willingly surrender. Jesus' utter anguish comes from the prospect of having to enter into darkness, enter into death. Jesus, he's already calmly predicted his suffering and death three times prior to this in Mark. He knows it's God's will for him to die, but he's still full of sorrow. We find a very similar description of what Jesus has said in in Psalm 55. It says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. Rather than just being the pain of the physical and mental torture that he's going to face, it's the separation from God that Jesus is praying can I avoid the really great weight upon Jesus is the knowledge that very soon he's going to bear all the weight taking all the guilt for all of our sins mine and yours the full weight of all of them on someone who was utterly perfect completely holy, bearing that punishment, taking all of the sin in all of the world for all time. And he knows that under that weight, just at that moment, God is going to step aside and Jesus is going to endure a form of hell. He's on the verge of becoming the sacrificial lamb a scapegoat who's going to bear everything. Could we do something different? Is there a different way? Is there a miracle that could stop this happening? The temptation for Jesus is real, just like when he was tempted in the desert. It says in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus is all-powerful. He could have avoided all of this. He could have simply disappeared. He could have brought down legions of angels to protect him. He could have made it, so actually, I go through it, but the pain is nothing. He chose to do none of those things. Rather, he's going to willingly choose to be beaten, bruised, and killed. It says this in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. 
We're all like sheep who've gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. Jesus knows what needs to be done and he knows what it's going to cost. He even sweats blood with his prayers. That's only mentioned in Luke's gospel. It's interesting that it's Dr. Luke's gospel that that's mentioned in. It's a clinical term. It's a medical condition. Um, I looked it up on some American, whatever the American equivalent of NHS Direct is. NHS Direct weren't very helpful. It says, around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict. Then, as anxiety passes, blood vessels dilate and rupture. The blood goes into sweat glands. As the sweat glands are producing lots of sweat, it pushes, pushes the blood to the surface, and droplets of blood mixed with sweat come out. It is not common, but it can happen in the most extreme forms of stress. So what can we learn from that? I've been in many situations that I would rather have not have been in. To be fair, most of them were of my own making and my own stupidity. I have never been to the point where I've sweated blood. We can take some comfort from the fact that no matter how bad a situation we could be facing... Jesus can be in it with us. He has been in worse. Seems a trivial thing, really. I remember a, a few years ago, I um, had to go and have an operation. I had to go and have my, my gallbladder out, um, which was good because I was in a lot of pain and bad because it now means I can eat whatever I want, which, um, yeah, not always good. It's a simple operation. You kind of go in, they put a couple of bullet holes in you and take your gallbladder out. You're in and out the next day. It's great. And I had the forms to sign. And it just, oh, you know, you may be in hospital a day or two. You may be all right. You know, there's the possibility of a few scars and things. And there's the possibility that you might die under anesthetic. And Whoa, hang on. What was that one? Oh, there's the possibility that you might die under anesthetic. Really? Oh, it doesn't happen. But, it, you know, we just have to write it down. That absolutely did my head in. And I, I, I really could not cope. The possibility I, I, was far too much for me to cope for. I'm, I'm a leader. I'm a Christian. I have a secure and eternal future. Man, it messed my head up. It really did. I mean, I'd love to be able to say, oh, and that was fine. It just means I got to go and meet Jesus. I was terrified. In fact, what I had to do is go and see a couple of Christian friends and say, please, please pray for me. I am scared. I have never faced anything like this before. I need support. Pray for me. Actually, they did. And I survived, by the way. Um, 
That's about the worst situation I can think I've been in. Jesus has been in far worse. Whatever pain, whatever death, whatever loss, mistreatment or abandonment we face, he has faced greater. This next sentence might offend you. Yeah. It makes worrying about jobs and money a little trivial in comparison. So how does Jesus face these things? Well, he faces them with prayer. So that's the next thing I want to look at. What was Jesus praying? Actually, Jesus doesn't call a prayer meeting. He leaves the disciples to one side. He's got a very specific prayer. And he says four things. Father, all things are possible. Take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. I just want to pull that apart a little bit. Father. Jesus prays to the Father in heaven. The most important thing is to know who you're praying to. Jesus prays to his Father. It's not some abstract concept or someone who's far off in the distance. It's someone Jesus has a close, personal relationship with. Somebody he speaks to and talks to all the time. Not just on a Sunday morning. I was watching the Remembrance Day thing last night from the Albert Hall. And at some point, right at the start, the Queen came in and they announced, they announced her as she came in and they said, in she comes, they didn't say that, that would be disrespectful, but she came in and they said, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, of her other realms and territories, Queen head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. Well, that's super. But in there as well was Charles, who calls her mum. Well, he would if he was northern. He probably calls her mum. But he's got a special name for her. We've got Jesus, son of God, king of kings, lord of lords, wonderful counsellor, prince of peace, Everlasting God, Alpha and Omega. When he prays to God, he says, Abba, Father, and we are told to do the same. He wants us to have the same relationship that he does. And when we call him Father, when we have that relationship with him, it's clear that we trust him, that we know that he cares for us that he's going to lead us in the best way, even when everything around us seems to break apart, even at the point of fear of death, we can know we have a father. When we come to a point where we don't know what to pray, actually just knowing he's father is enough. I'm sure you've been in that place as well. I know I have where my prayers have got as far as Father. Father. And that's it. His prayer 
is to a loving father who he's got a relationship with. And he says, if it's possible. In Luke's version it says, if you are willing. It means exactly the same thing. If God the Father wills it, then it's possible. Jesus is saying, is there a way for this to happen without going to the cross and all that it entails? But it's God's will and plan that's important. We can fail. We can step out of God's will. I'm sure many of us have. And then we surrender to God again. And he creates a whole new path. Jesus' desire isn't for that. Jesus' desire is for the Father's best. The Father's highest. The Father's desire and intention. Only if Jesus' prayer can be answered within it being exactly what God wants, does he want his prayer answered. This is not Jesus wriggling. This is not, can you get me out of this? This is Jesus saying, I want the best plan. And if this is it, then that's what we're going to do. I wonder how many of us have done exactly the opposite. I know there's times I have, where we kind of come up to God with a declaration of, this is my plan, please rubber stamp it. Follow my ideas and I won't bother you. Bless this mess that I'm about to make. That's not Jesus. He doesn't ask if God the Father will let him do this. He says, whatever you desire. It's a huge difference. Only, Father God, if you desire this, will I ask it. And what does he ask? He asks, can you take this cup from me? He asks the Father to take it away. The the Greek word for cup is porterian, which means cup. But in the Old Testament, actually as well as meaning cup that you drink out of, it actually also referred to it meant destiny in both a good and a bad sense. But it's specifically talked about and referred to punishment due to the wrath wrath of God. And the verses that are up there are, are all verses where cup means exactly that, wrath of God. Jesus has prayed for something that he would have considered impossible. He prays that the cup should be taken from him. This is a cup of suffering and dying, of being forsaken by God. He knows what's going to happen. He asks for the cup to be taken from him. He says... This, this would be my choice. Actually, Jesus is really honest. If it was up to me, this would be my choice. Actually, it's not wrong to do that. 
That's what we should do with our prayers as well. God, if it was me, this is what I would want. But your will be done. He acknowledges that what he wants isn't the most important bit. And he's prepared to lay it aside. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Those final words are the, are the most important ones. Jesus prays that not his own will, but God's is done. In his prayer, Jesus sets aside what he would rather have and submits to the will of God. It's obvious how difficult this is for Jesus because he's in deep anguish, suffering to the point of death. Three times he comes to the disciples. Three times he finds them sleeping and then he goes back to pray, crying out the same prayers to God each time. And then when he gets up from praying the third time, it's finished. Jesus gets up and his doubts are gone. Jesus faces it all, the humiliation, the trial, the mockery, all of it, with an attitude that is utterly unshakable. Nothing has changed in Jesus' circumstances. What's changed is that through prayer and strength, sorry, through prayer, he has found peace and strength and follows the will of the Father. So what can we learn from Jesus' praying? Well, a fairly obvious point is actually Jesus was quite persistent in it. Three times Jesus went a short distance and prayed to God. He didn't just do it once. He didn't just pray it once and think, well, that'll do. He prayed the same things until the betrayer arrived with a large mob and Roman soldiers. If Jesus sees the need to pray repeatedly, we probably should too. If anyone had access to God in his ear, it's Jesus. And he still saw the need to, re to pray repeatedly. Too many times our requests are just made once to God. This was important to Jesus. He kept praying it. Three times within a very short time, Jesus continued to repeat his requests to God. And he prayed according to God's will. Nevertheless, what I will, not what I will, what you will. Jesus wanted a particular outcome. He wanted this cup of distress to leave him. But actually what truly mattered was following God's will. Our prayers have got to be prayed according to the will of God. What often matters to us is what we want. Our prayers are never going to be answered if we only ask out of our own selfish desires. It says that in James chapter 4, verse 3. God's will must always be more important than our own. And prayers can be answered, no. Did Jesus get what he prayed for? No. Did the cup pass from him? No. Jesus still did the Father's will. We've got to see that sometimes there are reasons why the answer to our prayers is no. We've got to trust that he's working greater things when we can't see what's going on. He didn't lose faith. 
we mustn't lose faith. We've got to have a greater trust in God. And prayer brings peace. And it brings strength. Jesus, after praying, was able to go and face everything. Actually, the disciples were asleep. So let's look at what the disciples were doing. All they'd been asked was that they should stay awake with him and pray, but they fell asleep. Okay, they were probably tired. But do you think Peter and the other disciples would have fallen asleep if they'd known that Jesus was going to be arrested at any moment? Would you sleep if you knew that any moment the police are going to come and kick down your door? I don't think so. Peter falls asleep because he's relaxed. He thinks they're safe. He doesn't realize what's just around the corner. He sleeps because he sees no urgency to use the time to pray. Jesus comes back. He finds him asleep. And he says to Peter, couldn't you stay awake for just an hour? This is the Peter who's never going to desert Jesus. This is the Peter who I will die with you. He can't keep his eyes open. Jesus says to him, Stay awake, watch and pray that you may not enter into a time of temptation. Watch, watch what? Watch what Jesus is doing. He's praying. And pray. Pray to avoid temptation. To pray is to move closer to God. It's to move away from temptation and sin. If we keep moving, if we keep praying... We keep getting closer to him and further away from sin and getting it wrong. Faced with their own suffering, their own grief, caught up in the events that are going to spin out of control in their eyes, what are the disciples going to do? Are they going to hold on to their faith? Are they going to stay loyal to Jesus? Are they going to fall away? They've got a really tough time coming up. It's going to be hard work. What should they be doing? Jesus says, pray. Move closer to God. So they fall asleep. The disciples weren't expecting the last line of the passage. The betrayer is at hand. In that line, everything changes. The hanging out with Jesus stops. The being told lots of fantastic truths, but then not quite getting it right the first time, stops. The trying to walk on water stops. The sleeping stops. The instructions that you can rest later, but pray now, stop. Jesus is arrested. And in a few hours' time, he's going to be brutally killed. Out of nowhere, events that are utterly life-changing come charging in. They probably had all sorts of ideas about what was going to happen. When Jesus is finished in the garden here, I wonder what we'll be doing tomorrow. That's how we live our lives. We've all got plans and ideas. We've all got things that we want to see and do and achieve and then suddenly 
circumstances change when we're not expecting it. I can remember when I was 16, I went to Sixth Form College studying maths. I say studying. I went to Sixth Form College and attended some maths lectures. And I remember pretty much as we started sitting through a maths lecture thinking, I almost understand some of this. When I get home, I'll get my dad to explain it. And actually, at the end of that lecture, being pulled out by the principal, who said my mum was waiting to pick me up to take me home because my dad had passed away that morning. Instantly, things change. Instantly. There's always going to be unexpected things. Planning for tomorrow. Actually, I've got to do some planning for tomorrow. I'm a teacher. Planning for tomorrow. Planning for Christmas. Looking forward to next summer. Looking forward to retirement. I'm a little bit away from that yet. But there's an urgency in our time for all of us. There's going to be a final moment. It may be a long way off, but it's coming. Either this life's going to end or Jesus is going to return. There's no way around that. For Christians, whilst we don't look forward to death or the process of getting there, the truth is that we have a certainty of an eternal future, a certainty of time spent with Jesus, but it could come out of the blue. The last few hours of Jesus' life are all about him taking the punishment for all of our sins, for to pay for everything that we've done wrong so that our relationship with him is restored so that we're there, so that we're adopted in his family. When we become Christians, we gain all of that. That's great. If you're not a Christian, then you're choosing to pay for all of those things yourself. You're choosing not to let him do it for you. You're choosing not to have a relationship with God in this life or in what comes next. I'm young. I'm not. I'm young. I've got loads of time to think about those things. I'll get round to it. Everything changes in an instant. For the disciples, their whole lives changed in the last sentence of the passage. Don't leave it too late. The good news is that not only can you get back on a right footing with God, you can have him in charge of your life. You can have Jesus take away all the wrong things that you've done and pay for them. Circumstances can change instantly in the same way that the circumstances for the disciples suddenly got very difficult. Actually, you can become a Christian and your circumstances and your eternity change completely in an instant. You can become a Christian this morning. And just like the circumstances can change instantly for a non-Christian, the same thing's true for a Christian too. Sometimes we use the phrase, he lives like there's no tomorrow. Normally that means they're being a bit unrestrained, they're not worrying about the consequences. 
perhaps as Christians, we should live a little bit like there was no tomorrow in the meaning of we should take more account of getting things right with Jesus and doing the things he's called us to do, not doing the stuff that we know we shouldn't because maybe there isn't a tomorrow. Okay, maybe Neil's getting a bit heavy there. It was a bit late. The disciples nodded off. Not such a biggie, really. No. Jesus had said what they should do and what they shouldn't do. They got it wrong. And then it was too late. It's important. There's an urgency. There are probably things in our lives that we know aren't what God would want. Things we've said, things we've done, things we've thought. And it's easy to leave them for another day. It's not a big thing. I'll sort it out eventually. There's plenty of time. I bet as Peter's eyes were getting heavy and they closed for the third time, I bet his thought wasn't, oh, I wonder what's coming next. I bet his thought was either... Say sorry to Jesus when he wakes me up again. Or he'll leave me here till the morning. I'll say sorry then. What could go wrong? I'm only having a little nap. Oh, do you know what? I've got a whole other section. Um There's a sense of urgency. If you're not a Christian, there's a sense of urgency. You can have your eternal future changed today. There might not be a tomorrow. I don't say that to scare you. If you are a Christian, there's a sense of urgency. You can move on from the things that hold you back. You can move on from the things that are not what Jesus has told you to do. You can step away from them. And you can do it easily. You can put it off till tomorrow. But what if there's no tomorrow? You can get right with God very, very simply. Just tell him, I'm sorry, I'm doing this wrong. Help me get it right. There's an urgency. There's things for some folks that I know God has called me to do this. Maybe one day. No, take a step and do it. I know I should probably share the gospel with my friends, but it's difficult. Maybe one day. No, take a step and do it. There's a sense of urgency. Please do not think I'm trying to condemn anyone, beat anyone up, put anyone down. I put myself in this category as well. There is a sense of urgency.
the disciples didn't know what was coming and fell asleep. There's a sense of urgency. It talks about that in... I've got, I'm not going to do it. I've got a whole section from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's great. Read it. But I'm not going to go through it this morning. There's going to come a time when we have to give an account for everything that we've done. And there's going to be a choice. We could either stand in front of Jesus and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or we can stand in front of him and still be beckoned into heaven and have an eternal life and have a future with him because he's paid for all of our sins. But we could stand in front of him and have him say, you couldn't stay awake for an hour? There's an urgency I'm going to ask Andy and the band to come back up and I'm going to ask them to play another song. Whilst they're playing, I want us, and I say us because I'm in it as well, I want us to think, actually, if this was my last hour, if they're going to come bursting in the door any minute. What's not right? What's not right? What haven't I done? What do I need to do? And if necessary, say sorry to God. Sort it out. Put it right with him. And then worship. This isn't a... Oh, we're all dreadful, get beaten up. This is a, look, the disciples fell asleep and they ran out of time. You don't need to. Let's get it right. Let's wake up rather than fall asleep. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand over to Andy. Let's stand. Let's worship. And let's put things right with him. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you said, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you that even though it cost you everything, you chose to go through to the cross. You chose the pain, anguish, separation and weight of all of our sins so that we could be with you forever. Father God, help us. Help us to watch and pray. Help us to follow the instruction that you gave your disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord Jesus, help us watch and pray and follow your will. Amen. Amen.